You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, obviously, we've skipped quite a, quite a bit of history, right? And that last week, if you were here, um, we, we walked through the birth of this man, Samuel, who was born to a barren woman, Hannah, right? Um, a, a, a young boy who Hannah had prayed for with all of the desperation that she could muster. He's now uh, spent his life serving the Lord in the context of the, the, the tabernacle, the religious system of worship in Israel of the day. And we arrive at, we arrive at chapter 8, and he's not only not a little boy, he's old. The Bible goes... Uh, goes on to tell us that he's also had two sons in this process of growing old. And that those two sons, unlike him, have not ruled faithfully or have not walked faithfully with God. We, we come to find out that the sons of Samuel, Samuel being a prophet, someone who speaks on behalf of God, his two sons had been appointed as judges. So they were part of the political leadership of Israel during that day. But it tells us that they turned aside from Samuel's ways. They turned aside from God and they took bribes and they perverted justice. And so it's in light of this situation that in verse 4, the elders of Israel come before Samuel and they make a request. And this is what they say starting in verse 5. And they said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the nations. And so they come and they ask Samuel to give them a king. This displeases Samuel and Samuel goes to the Lord and presents this request to him. And at first glance, the unfaithful sons of Samuel and Samuel's old age are essentially the the. The overarching reason that these elders want this situation solved. They want a king because they don't trust Samuel's unfaithful sons to lead them into the future. They don't want to go back to the days of unrighteousness, right? We talked about judges in the first sermon of this sermon series that ends with that that note of there was no king in Israel and everyone did as they pleased. They don't want to go back to that time of unrighteous rule among them. And so they're concerned and they ask for a king. And while those are the circumstances that lead the elders of Israel to ask for this king, there is absolutely an underlying motive in this request. And that underlying motive comes to us in verse 19. You see, throughout verse 10, all the way through 18, Samuel's going to warn them about this taking, taking of a king, this appointing of a king. But in verse 19, we hear Israel's response to that warning. And this is what they say. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so when it came down to it, it's not so much that Samuel's getting old and it's not so much that Samuel has unfaithful sons, but it's that there is a battle to be fought and won. There are oppressors to be met. 
And there's a distinctness that Israel has always had in not having a king. And they want to be like the other nations. They want what makes them different to no longer make them different. They want to be like every other nation. And so those are the two underlying things that are, that are, that are at play there. And I don't think that those requests are, are, are necessarily requests that are unreasonable, right? They've suffered under the oppression of the Philistines. If you read uh, chapters 2 through 7 when you go home today, um, you'll, you'll see that story transpire, right? Of course, we all know the story of Goliath mocking openly uh, the, the nation of Israel day after day, right? Just, it's not fun. They want someone who's going to go and who's going to fight that battle for them, who's going to take this head on to overthrow that oppression. And then the second request is, is pretty similar as well. Well, look, all of these other nations that seem to be flourishing at the time, they have a king. They have a strong person who is ruling over them and who is fighting their battles for them. And so we're tired of being different in this way. We're tired of being distinct. We're tired of being set apart. We want to be like the other nations. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the temptation always when reading the story of the Israelites is to go, gosh, silly Israelites. But again, the reason that groups of people like the Israelites or like the Pharisees in the New Testament are in the Bible is not primarily so that we can laugh at them for their stupidity, but so that we would look at them and see ourselves. And so we are as vulnerable to the seductions that they were vulnerable to. This desire for a king to fight our battles. This desire to be released from the difficult of living life distinctly, differently from those around us. And God actually touches on the irony of this request from the Israelites. He says in verse 7, Obey the voice of the people, Samuel, in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so you see the irony of this request, and specifically the irony of the request in verse 19, that they would have a king that would judge them and go out before them and fight their battles, is that all of Israel's history is riddled with evidence that God is this king who does and has continued to fight their battles. He set them free from captivity in Egypt. He's conquered massive armies with 300 good men under the judgeship of Gideon. He's brought down false leaders. He's, he's walked with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He has fought their battles for them. He has gone before them and they reject that kingship. And so again, if the Israelites are not primarily to be laughed at or scorned over, if they're primarily there for us to look at and see ourselves in them, then I think we can bring this into the present day, honestly, quite easily. In fact, I think this is stunningly relevant for the situation that we find ourselves in. As a church in 2017, 
United States of America. You see, I think we also, as a collective, as a group of people, want a king that will fight our battles. And I think, as is evidenced by most polls that have come out post-elections, that we are willing to overlook just about anything as long as we get that champion. We'll overlook brazen lies. We'll overlook pedophilia. We'll look over just about anything as long as someone will uphold Christian morality in the public sphere, even if they don't in the private. Because we feel, right, we feel like there's an oppression, like there's something that's coming against us. We're not as free as we used to be. We're not as popular as we used to be. It's not as socially advantageous to be allied with Christ. And so now... We need someone to protect us in that sphere. We need someone to overthrow our oppressors. We just want to be protected. But the truth is, and Samuel is going to enumerate it for us in verses 10 through 18, there's, there's no man that can live up to that promise of protection, of safety of victory in the face of oppression. And while that's maybe one way that the church has been willing to compromise, I certainly think that on the narrow way of following Jesus, there's ditches on both sides, on the right and the left, if I need to be blunt about it. Because you see, they don't just want a king to overthrow their oppressors, they also just are tired of being distinct. They're tired of being different. And so they're willing to compromise on the clear commands of God and His promises if it meant that they would look, sound, believe, and behave like everything else, like everyone else. And is it not true, brothers and sisters, that the church in our day doesn't want to be distinct so often we soften the edges of what makes us different? I've heard these words said directly. Yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that sex outside of marriage is a sin. Or, yes, I'm a Christian, but I still drink to get drunk. Or, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't look, sound, believe, or behave any different than you. And so the follower of Jesus is utterly indistinguishable from the normal <laughs> pagan of the day. And brothers and sisters, if Jesus doesn't make us any different, if following him changes nothing about the way we look, sound, believe, or behave, what use is he? What hope is there of being transformed in any real way into his image and likeness? If we're comfortably broken, brothers and sisters, we'll never long for his restoring. And so we have a people here who are utterly willing to compromise, even though those, the, that willingness may come from different places. And so Samuel warns us what happens when we sell out the king for a king. This is what he tells them. He tells them 
that these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And what does he say? I'll just summarize so we don't read all these verses. But he says, he'll take your sons, appoint them over his chariots, he'll send them to war. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and all of your olive orchards and he'll give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in verse 18, and in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So what is the warning <laughs> comprised of? Well, he'll, he'll take a tithe. He'll take your land. He'll take your sons. He'll make you slaves, right? In short, in short, the kings would be takers who would diminish others to further their own interests. So, so you're going to call a king thinking that that's in your best interest, but ironically, you will end up only serving their interests. And even after that warning, we already know, we've read it in verse 19, right? They chose a king anyway. And listen, this is not, they don't choose this king out of ignorance, right? Right? It was widely believed in Israel at this time that Samuel was a prophet, that he spoke the words of God, right? 1 Samuel uh, chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 say this. It says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground, meaning what he said came to pass. Verse 20, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. But it's not just the words of Samuel which act as the words of the Lord in this present moment, but it's also, they also choose a king in spite of the fact that they all knew a fundamental tenet of the Torah, God's law given to Moses, was that Israel was to be distinct among the nations, that they were to be different. Leviticus 20 Verse 26 says of Israel, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And we'll see the prophecy of Samuel carry itself out um, in the days and in the weeks to come. Um, but suffice it to say, they chose poorly. And brothers and sisters, whether our chosen king this morning is a political strongman or the acceptance of people that we're distinct from, both of those kings will rule us unkindly. Both of them will enslave us to their benefit. And this is why Advent is so special. It was a quick turn, wasn't it? This is why Advent is so special. You see, where Israel chose a human and imperfect king in response to Samuel's unfaithful sons, we get to choose the perfect king in response to God's faithful son, Jesus. 
The joy of the Christmas story is in the wonderful reality that God sent His Son Jesus to be our King and He is unlike any kind of king. So this warning against kings that Samuel brings is not a warning about King Jesus because He is utterly different. Let's just contrast Jesus with the warning itself, right? In Samuel, we're warned that kings will take the tithe, right? That they will take money from the people who they rule over. Well, Jesus, instead of taking the tithe, gives everything. He gives us everything, right? It tells us in the New Testament, right, after Jesus was born, that in Jesus, we've been given every spiritual blessing. In 1 Peter, it tells us that we have an inheritance that cannot be taken away from us, that no moth can destroy in old age and no thief can come in and steal because God is guarding it by his own power and that inheritance is life in his kingdom. That inheritance is belonging to the family of God. He gives us everything. And Samuel were warned that the king will take our land. But in the Bible we find out that Jesus doesn't come to take our land but in fact he goes to prepare for us a better land. That he goes to prepare for us a place that we will dwell in that is filled with wonder and glory beyond what our eyes, our hearts, and minds can imagine or contrive. In 1 Samuel, we're warned that the king will take our sons and use them for his own glory. But in Jesus, we find out that God not only does not take our sons, but he gives us his In 1 Samuel, we're warned that the king will enslave us, will make us slaves, that these bad rulers will use us to their own ends. But in Jesus, we find out that instead of making us slaves, God in fact makes us sons and then sets us free from what enslaves us. And so in short, Jesus, this new king, is a giver who diminishes himself to further our interests rather than the opposite. Right? If the, if the kings that we're being warned about in Samuel are takers, takers who will take and diminish others to further their own interests, then Jesus is the exact opposite in that He is a giver who self-diminishes in order to further our interests. He is the king that we long for. He is the king that they long for. They just don't know it. And so the glory of Advent is not only that this king came at one point, but that he will also return. And so here's what that means, brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer oppression. It doesn't mean that we won't have difficulty living distinct lives. Substitute the word distinct for holy if you want. Living a holy life in 2017 is going to be uncomfortable. But I think what often what often gets in the way of us living into those realities is the emergency of the immediate. 
You see, again, the people here, they know. They know that they've been promised a Messiah. They know that they have a God that walks with them in the day and in the night. They know that they have a God who has delivered them in the past and who promises to deliver them in the future. They know that there's a good king coming. But that's then. And the Philistines, they're they're right now. I'm looking at a literal giant who's ready to tear my head off. And so they say, just give us a king. And brothers and sisters, I think the same is similar for us. Right? We know. We know that God has come to us in Christ. We know that in Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing. We know that in Christ we have no lack. We know that in Christ there is neither height nor depth nor width nor breadth nor, nor anything else in all creation that can separate us from the love of Christ. We know that we will be delivered to Him wholly. We will dwell in His presence for eternity. There we will eat, we will drink, and we will be merry, absent from the suffering of sin, absent from tears, absent from sickness and death. All of those things will be no more in the glory of the kingdom to come. We know that. But you know what? It sure is hard to get through today. It sure would be easier if our culture was more readily accepting of the way I live my life. It sure would be easier if we had someone fighting our battles. And so the glory of Advent, brothers and sisters, is that it reminds us that our hope has come in Jesus, but that it is also still coming. And it gives us the fortitude and the strength to to remember that we can endure oppression, endure the difficulty of holy living in hope that our perfect king will in fact come and will in fact make all things new. That your king right now is sovereign over the entire universe. In fact, right now, it tells us in Colossians 1 that he is actively ensuring that the planets keep their alignment, that the earth's axis stays the exact angle that it's supposed to stay so that as it spins, your feet stay on the ground. And that that same king has promised you that he will come and he will make all things new, that He will come and He will make all things new. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't have to put our hope in princes as the psalm urges us not to do. Because we don't need princes, we have a king. And we don't just have a king, we have the king. He has come and He is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you that we have a hope of a future that is absent of Satan's sin and death, that is absent of corruption, that is absent of injustice, that is absent of other kings trying to rule over us because one day, God, you will conquer all of them. Each and every one of them will be subdued by your glory, will be subdued by your might and your power and your holiness. 
And we will be freed to live in and enjoy your reign and rule of peace and mercy and kindness and joy and fellowship. And so God, as we come to the table this morning, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate the fact, God, that one day there will be a much more majestic table with much more food on it that we will partake of with glad hearts because the King is returned. So God, we pray that you would keep us from the temptation of other lesser kings and that you would remind us always of the great hope there is in your perfect king, your son, Jesus. We love you. We thank you for him and we thank you for all good things in the name of Jesus. Amen.